Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our latest ebook, Leadership for Organizational Growth. In it, you'll discover the nature, best practices, and common myths surrounding leadership and how to develop your leadership skills to drive revenue growth. Check out this brand new ebook today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 313. This is Rylan Sylvester, and today I'm actually stepping in as host in place of Elizabeth Frederick, who is actually going to be one of our guests. So we've sort of switched in that regard. And alongside her is going to be the CFS founder and CEO, Charles Bernard. You've probably heard him on the podcast before, too. So welcome to today's show, Charles and Elizabeth. Thanks so much, Rylan. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you both for being here. And I'm excited to chat with you on the pod and to do sort of like a roundtable style chat because, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, CFS just published an ebook called Leadership for Organizational Growth, which was written by you, Charles, and then edited by you, Elizabeth. So mm-hmm. I thought for today we could discuss some of the highlights from the resource and to hear a bit from you both about the book and about leadership, since you're both sort of experts in that area. So with all that being said, I think we should just jump right in. Does that sound good? Yeah. Sounds great. So you both have done lots of work on leadership, and this ebook focuses specifically on leadership for organizational growth and about the many different components of leadership and how leadership can have such a great impact on an organization. Charles, can you tell me a bit about your inspiration for this particular ebook and topic? Well, Rylan, I've been wanting to, for a long time, write this book because it's been, leadership has been part of the curriculum that we deliver in our training, in our sales growth programs. So we Mm -hmm. don't just work on sales improvement for salespeople, but we work on leadership and how that drives results and performance. So getting that on paper, getting that written down has been uh, one reason that I did this. The other is that with the pandemic that we're just coming out of, COVID, um, Mm -hmm. the role of leadership has sort of come to the forefront for a lot of the people I'm talking to. And it sort of morphed from uh, one particular type of leadership where everyone was in an office and close together, physically connected, to more of a dispersed remote um, medium. And that seems to have impacted leadership as well. And then the last thing that I'll say about why I wrote this book is because one of the big shifts that we are recommending in our sales growth program, remember I do, you know, we work on the sales side of leadership mostly, but what we talk about is universal, is this idea of forming a sales growth team with all the leaders in an organization. So much of the book is not about individual leadership, although there is quite a bit of that, but it's also about collaborative leadership. And that's why I was very excited to do that. Right. And I see that that shows up in the book too. You have chapters on collaborative leadership, um, different leadership styles. Um, Actually, as I said before, the ebook covers a lot of these leadership topics. So like leadership brands, leadership visions, common theories of leadership, um, replacing leaders. So why is it so important and I'll, I'll pose this question to you both and I'll start with Elizabeth, but why is it so important for leaders to understand all of these different areas of leadership? 
Definitely. That's a great question, Rylan. And um, anybody who has read a lot of our various ebooks and other resources is going to see this is one of the longest ebooks, maybe the longest we've ever published. Um, hopefully that's not intimidating. It's, it's, there's a nice summary that, that you can you know, get a short um, version of it. But for us, one reason that we needed to have so many topics in the ebook is that we encounter so many leaders who've never had any training or development. It's a really strange thing that in such an important position, what happens, especially in the area of sales, is that you'll have top performers and just promote them into leadership, which seems you know, mm -hmm. quite logical. But the skills and the behaviors that it takes to be a top performer in sales are not the skills that it takes to be an effective leader. And so you've got tons of leaders around the country, around the world, who've never really been trained in the core principles of leadership. And a lot of them do a really great job. You know, I'm not saying every salesperson who was ever promoted to management is a terrible person or anything like that, but it's hard. And when it comes to evaluating an organization and when it comes to trying to identify the reason for problems and challenges that they run into, we so often find that leadership is part of the problem. Again, it's not always the full problem. Mm -hmm. And it's not that leaders are bad people, but it's, it's pretty hard to get into a really big problem without there being some room for improvement in leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more leaders have perspective on leadership at a broad level, the likely, likelier they are to be able to identify, you know, I, I think I might be weak in coaching people, or I don't think I really have a strong sense of how I should lead people differently based on where they are in their career or based on their personality style or anything else. And so um, the, the broad range of topics that we cover here is really intended to help leaders shore up any areas that they might identify, you know what, I never had development in this. And, um, and this is really something that I should work on for my own personal growth and to be a better leader for my team. Absolutely. I mean, it makes so much sense. You know, any, any job has some sort of training or some sort of onboarding program. So why wouldn't leadership be something that, um, you know, has that as well? I mean, I know we've talked before on the podcast about like, you know, the difference between being a manager and being a, being a leader. Um, and so it's, I think this is great that this is like another thing to add into that because it doesn't always mean that they're the same thing. Uh, Charles, do you have anything to add to that? So like, why is it so important? Do you think that, that leaders understand all of these different areas of leadership that you talked about in this book? Well, I could talk for hours, Ryland, about this topic, but I'll try to keep it short. The, um, I, I endorse <laughs> everything Elizabeth said. But, you know, I want to focus on something that she started with, which is that not a lot of leaders have gotten trained. And I would agree with that. No formal training, if you will. Um, but I'll add to that. And this may sound a little controversial, which if anyone knows me, I like to shake things up a little bit because I think mm -hmm. challenging the status quo gets people out of their frame of reference and allows them to explore new things, which is what I'm doing partly in this book. I will comment that a lot of the training that does exist is um, a lot of stuff I actually disagree with, I hate to say it, but what am I saying in the book? I'm basically identifying not only 
traits that I think are important or behaviors, all of that stuff that you get in most of the leadership training that's available. And just go on Google and punch in books on leadership. You're not going to get five books. You're probably going to get five million books. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't, in my opinion, this sort of definitive, this is what leadership is. And now the irony is like my book is the five millionth and one book on, on leadership. <laughs> but um, the, the thing I want people to do when I say attack is think about some of the common myths. Like people are born leaders. I absolutely vehemently disagree that a leader is born. And I absolutely vehemently disagree with the fact that there are leadership properties out there, like they grow on trees. So um, that's, that's one area that I think is important to mention. But the other thing is that um, I think this, this is something that I've observed, and I think I speak for Elizabeth because she does a lot of the training with me together is that we really oftentimes don't recognize the impact we make. And when we say leaders, and I say this very clearly in the book, you don't have to have a title. It isn't a rite of passage for you to become a leader. It's not like um, someone made you a leader. You kind of emerge. Mm -hmm. So very often we see that many leaders don't have titles. They don't have position. They don't have status. And yet people follow them. People really listen to what they have to say. And, and when the, with that comes a certain amount of responsibility. And I think a lot of people don't recognize until we kind of examine it in a training, the real impact that they make to their organizations. So um, I just wanted to get that out because I think it was important. I think those are, those are great points. And we'll, we'll sort of come back to that and talk about it a little bit later. Um, but building on that, um, one chapter I find particularly interesting um, is the chapter on leadership and contexts. So it explains that leaders need to become aware of their organization's context and or contexts, sorry, <laughs> and should strive to be a context-setting leader. So Charles, well, since we just um, ended with you, why don't you continue? Could you get us started on what exactly context refers to and what context setting is? Yeah, um, when I'm talking about context, I feel like I'm a nuclear physicist having to describe this context <laughs> formula. Because um, it's the hardest and most confusing thing, I think, to talk about. And yet, in my opinion, again, it's the most powerful. And I'm going to ask Elizabeth to bail me out because she has this great ability to take some of my complex thinking and saying what Charles is really saying is <laughs> making it really easy. But the best way to describe context, at least referencing it in, in the context of leadership, is that it's different than the content. So the analogy I use is if you imagine a bowl of fruit, the fruit is what's inside the bowl. That's the content. And the context is the bowl that's holding the fruit. And so therefore, mm -hmm. the purpose of that bowl is to hold fruit. You could have another bowl that holds salad. You could have another bowl that holds marbles, but that bowl is given a purpose. And so the purpose oftentimes is what is inside of that and how that relates to leadership and, and companies is that contexts are very important series of systems that usually are invisible. That's why it's hard to explain. 
but yet they drive behavior. So synonyms, other words other than context are paradigms, culture. You know, I love that. People are like, I want to change my culture. I go, great, where is it? Where are the buttons and the levers for you to go ahead and change it? So why is this important? Well, if people realize that context drives a lot of behavior in an organization, who should care about that? Like some people might say, well, that's great. Thanks for sharing, but I don't know what difference that makes. But to a leader, I think that's really important because Mm -hmm. leaders can shape context and leaders can change context and leaders can evolve context, meaning they can affect how people behave. They can affect how people are satisfied in their jobs. I'm not saying they do it for them. You can't motivate people by, like I said, you know, changing a certain set of principles, but you can help people work in an environment that is supportive. Uh, And we've seen the opposite. We've seen environments where it's not supportive. Like for some reason, you know, there is a context of um, second guessing, gossip, uh, people not Mm -hmm. being uh, supported. So context is really important for a leader to understand. And there's a whole chapter about once you understand what it is, what you can do to affect it, But um, I'm going to stop talking and see if Elizabeth wants to kind of crystallize what I'm saying that makes it a little easier for others. Definitely. Um, I think what you just said a minute ago, Charles, is is maybe one of the most important for people who are struggling with this idea. It's that context is what's driving the behaviors that you see. So really often what we find is we try as leaders to correct behaviors, And that's basically like treating the symptoms without thinking of the overall disease that might be producing those symptoms. And obviously that makes a context sound like a disease. Context can be positive or negative. But um, one example that I'll share is from a client that I worked with years ago. And I probably have shared this story on the podcast because it was so impactful for me. We had a client that engaged us to evaluate their inside sales team. And they weren't getting the performance they wanted from inside sales. And they had hired and fired people. They had changed leadership, gotten a new manager for it, changed the reporting structure. I think they even physically moved them to a different office. All these things over the years to change the results in inside sales. And yet the results weren't changing. And as leaders, When we run into those situations where we're, again, Charles, like you were just saying, you know, we're trying to adjust all the levers that we can see. We think I've done everything I can. It just must be every single person I've ever hired is terrible. And that's probably not the cause, right? And so as we were evaluating this team, we did interviews with them as well as the people who worked around them. We analyzed their processes, their systems. We evaluated the leadership and we were able to diagnose a context that was underlying everything around them that was impacting these results. And that context was inside sales aren't real salespeople, they're sales assistants. And it demoralized them. It disempowered them. The salespeople, without even recognizing it, the outside salespeople were were acting from that context. They were expecting the inside sales team to function as their sales assistants managers were not preventing that from happening. 
they weren't maybe actively supporting it, but because they didn't say that's not acceptable or because they didn't change expectations, the underlying message that came through was that's correct. This isn't an inside sales job. And I'm not saying that being a sales assistant is a bad job, but if you took a job called inside sales and if you're being compensated for selling and expected to do selling, but then you're being asked to do all of these things that are not selling, but instead are being a sales assistant, you get frustrated and you get demoralized. And so the context is that underlying belief that comes out in behaviors and actions and then can have ripple effects across the organization. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And actually, I think building on that, Elizabeth, can you keep going and sort of explain now building off that example, like how can someone become a context setting leader? What are the questions they should start to ask or what actions should they start to take? Definitely. That's a, that's a great question. So anytime you have a recurring issue, a significant problem, one great question to ask is what must people believe that is allowing the situation to persist? And that's likely going to be an unspoken context. And something to think about with a context is, um, and it's a good question to ask, is what is the cost that this context is creating for me and for my organization? And what's Mm -hmm. the payoff, right? If we go back to the example I was just sharing, the cost was an inside sales team that was demoralized, high turnover, um, low performance, lots of other things. But the payoff for the sales team was they had a lot of admin responsibilities and they needed sales assistance or somebody to help with that. And so they had this team that they were able to give that to. And anytime you have a context, some group is getting a payoff while another group is likely bearing the cost. Sometimes you even have the same person who's getting a payoff and bearing the cost. For example, um, somebody who consistently procrastinates and just stresses themselves out, um, you know, always waits until the very last minute to get things done. Your payoff is that you get to do what you like to do at the other times, but your cost is you're massively stressing yourself out in the five minutes before something is due, right? So the payoff and the cost could be to the same person or group or to different ones, but there's always going to be both. And if you just think about the cost and you don't really address that payoff, you're unlikely to be able to really make any sort of a change in context. That actually leads to my next point, which is you should not, as an individual leader, try to diagnose a context and assume that you're correct. You also shouldn't try Mm. to assume that you know what the costs are and what the payoffs are. You really need to get people involved to validate any assumptions you might make and really get their perspective. You may be somebody who's getting a significant payoff from the existing, you know, slightly broken context. And a lot of times we are, you know, unknowingly blind to that because we're benefiting from the system. Uh, And so anytime you have an invisible context that Um, that you think you've identified, getting other people, especially at different levels of your organization, to add their perspective can be invaluable because they're going to notice things that you won't. And if you can establish a, 
a, a format for this discussion, whether it's through anonymous surveys or whether it's through um, in-person meetings where people are, are clearly understanding that they're not going to get in trouble <laughs> if they point something out, um, you're going to hear uh, some things that you wouldn't have even thought of. And quite often you'll realize, you know, how you as a leader might be contributing to this context. The last thing that I want to mention here in terms of setting context is to ask a big question. And there's two sides of this big question. The big question, first of all, is what's possible. So it's what's possible mm -hmm. if we stay on the same path that we're on. If we don't change the culture, what's possible? And there, there, there's something, right? There is an answer to that question. Um, it's a big question, but you can, you can think of that. And then what you wanna ask next is what's possible if we were to change? What's possible if we were to eliminate mm -hmm. this, this negative context that's driving our behavior? What's the possible new context that we could be acting from? And as you begin to ask that really powerful question, you're creating opportunity. And something that's really important and impactful about the idea of context and why I think we're spending so much time talking about it is as soon as you have named a context, you've already started working on dismantling that or evolving that context because the mm -hmm. nature of a context is that it's invisible. It's behind the scenes. It's driving the behaviors even though people don't recognize it. And as soon as you recognize it and you start these conversations, you're beginning the process of changing the context. Like um, within the sciences, you know, anytime you observe something, you change it by the nature of your observing it. And that can be a really empowering thing because um, as you just begin to work on this, you, you likely are going to see some immediate um, changes that can bubble up. So talked a lot there, but um, it is such an important topic. Charles, you jump in. No, sorry, Rylan. I was just going to say, I think Elizabeth and I have been working, uh, I just realized, a long, long time <laughs> together <laughs> because I was literally writing down questions about what's possible and she literally just went there. Um, <laughs> so I just want to add one thing, though, and that is that it's really important. Again, we're sort of talking about the nature of a context, why it's important to be aware of it, what to do potentially to change it. And it still comes back to, so what, right? Why? And I think it really does, it is important to discuss for leaders. I think if you're not a leader and you're listening to this, you might not really care about what we're trying to, what we're talking about. But by nature of being a leader or putting yourself in a leadership position, you are asking these questions that Elizabeth's talking about. So you know, leaders tend, in my opinion, tend to be very sensitive to the environment and they're kind of checking in if they see what they consider to be uh, dysfunctional behavior or people walking around disempowered or unhappy in some form, rather than, as she said earlier, treat the symptoms, maybe before you do that, it's good to step back and look at what's driving this. Like, why is it that I've, I'm observing this and is my observation correct? I'll give you a quick analogy. This is my favorite. I call it the analogy of superstition. So check this out. A superstition is only a superstition when it isn't. And let me explain what I mean. 
if if you have if you're if you're like constantly believing in superstition like um when a black cat walks by me i'm going to win the lottery that's a fact then the moment you call that into question is no longer a superstition so what mm. keeps that superstition in place is the fact that we don't even question it we just act from it and that's i think what elizabeth's talking about when she says the moment you start inquiring about a context you put a little bit of distance from you and it and you can um, examine possibilities so I don't know, Ryland, if this is what you bargained for in terms of the <laughs> amount of conversation on context, but I would say, you know, it is something worth reading in the book because I think we spend a little more time uh, trying to make it clearer than we are doing here. No, absolutely. And I think one um, anecdote you sort of, or I guess story that I'm about to paraphrase that you kept in the book um, was citing David Foster Wallace's graduation speech he had given at a college. And I think this just was like a perfect example to get to explain what you were trying to say um, or that you did say where he or an analogy really, but he basically says that there are fish swimming in the sea. There are two young fish and an older fish. I could be even butchering it right now, but I think this is what it is. Um, and the older fish looks at the two young fish and he says, how's the water today? or something like that. And the two younger fish are like, what's water, right? And so I think that was a perfect analogy. Like you wanna get people to the place of where they see the water or they're aware of that. Um, and one other thing I wanted to build onto that is I like that you were saying, Elizabeth, like the terms evolving or like if a context is slightly broken because it can also be, a context doesn't always have to be negative, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe one of you wants to speak to that. Um, it can be something too, to help you inform like what better to do. Like if something is working well, we need to keep doing that. And how can we change that or bring that in? And um, do you want to take that, Elizabeth? Yeah, I'm going to ask Charles to add to this because he, um, he has a great example. But anytime you see a company that has a, a mission statement that you can tell that they're living out, in a positive way that's driving an effective culture, that's because there's a positive context behind the scenes driving it. So one example is at Zappos back um, at the very beginning, and they still are evidencing a lot of this, this culture now, they would offer employees a large bonus to quit within the first 90 days. And the idea was, the context behind this was, we only want people who value the job more than that money, right? And so you're going to have people who are kind of on the fence and like, I could get, you know, $1,000, a few thousand dollars to quit today. I'm going to do that and get another job that's the same. That's the people who view it as a job. But the people who stay are mm -hmm. the people who are thinking, this is a better job than I could get otherwise. This is something that I care about. I'm passionate about. And so a context was driving that specific behavior. And that literally changed the entire workplace culture and came out into how customers experience the company, right? I never worked at Zappos, but I have been a customer of theirs. And it's a, it's a different buying experience than a lot of other places. And so a lot of times you'll have a positive context and maybe even the example that I'm sharing is a symptom of that context, but the context under all of it is we want our employees to be passionate and to care about the customers and to care about our organization and not just to be working here for a paycheck. Love that. 
So I think, Elizabeth, you wanted me to add to that. Do you still want me to do that or do we want yeah. to move on? Well, we were talking this morning about okay. something and I think that that might be an interesting thing for you to share. Hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. So uh, for the listeners, there's a great book. I read it a while ago and everyone I've recommended this book to has usually thanked me. It's a, it's a good read. And the title of the book is Tribal Leadership. And it talks a lot about culture, stuff we've been talking about, because culture and, and context are almost one and the same. And they identified five stages of culture. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole five stages, but I'm going to talk about the fifth stage, which really hit me like a two by four on the side of the head. Because I was <laughs> I was really enjoying this book. I was getting to, you know, the end of the book and um, I was kind of like winding down thinking, oh, this is great. I, I, there can't be anything else they're going to add. And they saved the best to the end. So spoiler alert, you might want to move on if you don't want to uh, hear the end. But quickly, <laughs> they talked about um, this fifth stage of a culture. They were ready to stop at stage four. And um, they went and interviewed Kevin Shearer who was the CEO at the time of an organization called Amgen, which probably most people have heard about. They provide cancer curing drugs to the market. Um, they do a lot of good work. And they asked him a question thinking they would get a specific answer. And the answer they got totally floored them. And they had to almost rewrite the end of the book. And the question they asked Kevin was, who are your top competitors, right? So Amgen is uh, in the health wellness space. They're providing these cancer curing drugs. And they were fully expecting to hear uh, Pfizer, uh, Merck, J&J, and some of these household names that would be viewed as competitors. And then they were probably going to ask a couple of, you know, second and third questions to find out why they were competitors. But he didn't say that. He absolutely said something completely different. And he pondered and he said, our competitor our biggest competitor is cancer. Our biggest competitor is wellness. And they were like, wow, that's really interesting. And because of that answer, he was able, Kevin, the CEO, to tell the authors of the book why that was so critical to driving the culture in the organization. Because a lot of the time, the employees, like think about Apple and Microsoft back in the day when they were really fierce competitors. You'd have all the employees in Microsoft trying to outdo code and features and products uh, against Apple and vice versa. And so in a way, that's a good culture because you're rallying as a employee base of thousands in this case against the common enemy. But that wasn't the case in, uh, in Amgen's case. Their common enemy was we're here to improve life. And the employees there were not looking to beat up on a competitor like Pfizer. What they were looking for is how to make life great, that life is worth celebrating. And that was really something that I personally took as probably one of the most valuable insights into how a leader, a CEO like this person, Kevin Shearer, could affect or at least empower, because I don't think a leader comes up with the idea and then forces everybody to adopt it. Mm. But in his case, reinforces that idea, makes it something worth reinforcing, helps people recognize what do you really care about? 
So that's another reason for uh, the significance of context. That's great. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about alignment too, um, to get the whole company sort of on the same page if you have this uh, strong sort of mission statement, I guess you'd say. But mm -hmm. I yeah. want to go back to... Yeah, people align around... Va Sorry to interrupt, but people... Oh, yeah, yeah. I think people align around values before Absolutely. they align around behaviors and tasks. Mm -hmm. For sure. So actually, I want to go back to something that we sort of touched on a little bit earlier, which was having a leader understand the impact they have on an organization. I mean, it's all tying in together. But one part of the book specifically that touched on that was the chapter about employee stress and burnout. Um, and the chapter emphasized that employee well-being is actually really dependent on leadership. And I thought this was like a good thing to talk about, you know, still as we're dealing with COVID, this is a sort of hot button topic and it's definitely on everyone, like top of mind for so many people. But um, the chapter basically says that it's up to leaders to take actions that have their employees in mind or moving forward. That's something we should consider. So can you share a bit about how this clarification um, can be helpful for leaders to understand in terms of their impact. And I'm going to push that question to Elizabeth to start. Absolutely. Um, this is something that I've been talking to quite a few people about over the last, you know, at this point, 15, 18 months. And it's certainly become, as you said, a bigger focus because I think leaders have recognized how important it is that their employees are well mentally and emotionally and, you know, physically. And when you have people who are burned out, you're not getting effective performance. The key philosophy under this is to remember that people are, are whole people, right? And you can't just focus on the work performance of an individual without thinking about the fact that they have a whole life around that. If you had an employee who had a broken arm, like visibly broken arm, you wouldn't expect that they're just going to work perfectly normally, you know? Why aren't you typing faster? I have a I have a broken arm. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You would expect that they would go to a doctor and that they would, you know, get a cast or a wrapping or whatever it might be and that they would take care of that broken arm. And yet you have employees who are dealing with significant, you know, family issues. You have a lot of people who are still working from home and maybe have kids at home and they're dealing with childcare issues. You have people who have mental health issues, whether it's depression or anxiety, whether they're experiencing grief. And that's as much of an injury on a person. That can be as much of an impediment on a person as a broken arm could be. And expecting that you're just going to ignore that as the leader is like having an employee sitting there with a broken arm across from you and just running a meeting like normal. It's important to think about the fact that the most time most people spend awake is at work. The people that you're around the most often, even more than your friends and your family, are the people that you work with. And so when people are stressed, when they're burnt out, what you're going to see is it, it actually becomes almost contagious within a team. You'll see one person is underperforming and that actually makes other people around them have to work harder. You see higher turnover. You see people who maybe even stick with the job throughout the really difficult time. And once it's over, once they're maybe on the other side, they're so disappointed at not getting the support that they wanted from your organization that they leave because they think, you know, if I were to 
have a difficult situation like this again, I I don't want to go through it like I went through it here. And so as a leader, you have the ability to set expectations and establish the behaviors that you want to see. One great way to do that is to actually be an example. And that's something I think a lot of leaders don't recognize is the way you behave toward yourself and the way you take care of yourself is what employees see. And so that whole idea of the first one into the office and the last one to leave, if you as a leader are doing that, you're sending the message to your employees that the best employees are doing the same thing, right? If you have a policy where you offer paternity leave or maternity leave or family leave of another sort, and none of the top executives take it, you're sending the message, you know, spoken or unspoken, that nobody should really take that leave. Yes, you offer it, but, you know, it's it's not really acceptable to do it. If you email people at all hours of the day and the night and on vacation and on weekends and you're always, always, always available, again, you're setting this expectation for your team that they need to be doing the same. And so it's really important for leaders to understand You do have an impact in the specific actions you take related to other people, how you deal with your team members, um, how you coach them, uh, the questions that you ask, the care that you provide. But you're also having an impact, even when you don't recognize it, by the choices that you make for yourself. So I think that's one of the most important things for leaders to take into account. I love that. It's uh, it's like this analogy that I often hear from leaders that I like to lead by example. Or I wouldn't ask someone to do anything I wouldn't do uh, myself. And the implication there oftentimes is I'll work just as hard or harder. And that's really insightful, Elizabeth, because I think letting people see that you can relax, letting people see that it's okay to leave a little earlier and it's okay to you know, providing it's done responsibly, I think um, this idea of leading by example to show how to just be this hamster on a, you know, treadmill <laughs> is not a good example to set. Um, my, my, I would just add, Ryland, that um, if I wanted to give someone a tip for a leader to improve well-being, take everything Elizabeth said and sort of distill it into these formal evaluations, because we do speak with a lot of clients about uh, as a leader, especially if you're a supervisory leader, like you have employees reporting to you, you got the dreaded annual review. And I would say, unfortunately, very few people look forward to these annual reviews. Why is that? Why do the majority of people, both on the reviewer giving the review, as well as the person being reviewed, kind of go into these events with dread. And I think that's one area that we could, talking about context, we could kind of reshape the impact of an evaluation and what is your intent? In other words, what is the context for an evaluation? And I think that's the beginning of sort of changing this evaluation as this um, really in-depth inspection into my performance, plus or minus, and uh, maybe shift it a little bit to where can we support you? Where can I as your leader support you? Um, And back to what Elizabeth said, I think a very important thing in an evaluation is to include that, how are you doing? You know, to include that part, how are you doing 
personally, hey, Ryland, you know, we're doing this thing together. It's a great opportunity. We don't have too many opportunities to really sit down, spend an hour, quality time. How's your personal life? I don't want to pry, but everything okay? Anything I can do to support you? Um, you know, how are you dealing with the pandemic? How you do, you know, it's, it's cause people are kind of stressed out and they feel they don't have the room to, uh, to speak up. And I think evaluations is one area that we can flip from it being perceived as a negative event to uh, a supportive empowering event. Wouldn't it be great if every employee walked out of these evaluations thinking, wow, this just reinforced that I want to continue working here and what, what a great company, what a great environment I'm in. Ask yourself, what kind of evaluation would you need to conduct so that your employee that's being evaluated came away with that sentiment? Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you're sort of Definitely. saying, you know, get the leader to get the conversation going, not because you never know who wants to have it and who doesn't. Um, and they're not going to, it's not always going to be the case that the employee wants to speak up. So if the leader can sort of take that first step and open the door, yeah. then that could lead to some really interesting conversations. Well, I am taking a look at the clock and we are sort of reaching the end. I think this is sort of a great place to start to wrap up. But before we go, Elizabeth always asks this question to guests and now I get to ask Elizabeth and Charles, do you have any resources or recommendations you'd like to share with our listeners? So is there anything that's top of mind for you lately? All right, I'll start because I love asking this question and I actually have a ton of <laughs> answers. So um, I never get to share my ideas when, when I'm hearing right. from other people. So first of all, I'm going to recommend uh, a few podcasts. Um, one is the Dare to Lead podcast from Brene Brown. Um, she does a lot of work on vulnerability and on... Um, you know, self-improvement, but she's started to work on leadership specifically in uh, a book and a podcast on leadership and dare to lead is just, uh, it's incredible. The conversation she has with people there. Um, another, this is a podcast, this is our podcast, but the specific guest, Amy K. Hutchins, I've spoken to twice, episode 173 and episode 252. And she's an expert on communications and specifically gives guidance on how to lead tough conversations. And where leadership <laughs> happens is typically in conversation. It's just a series of conversations. Life is a series of conversations that we have. And she is just such a better communicator than I am <laughs> at how to, how to really approach these conversations in ways that empower people, that affect change, uh, and that generate the results that you're looking for. So I'd recommend listening to those episodes and then you'll, you can check out um, her books as well, which are linked there. Um, three more and then I'll stop. <laughs> um, I did put an ebook together, shameless plug, on being a grateful leader. And the reason that I wanted to bring that up is so much of this that we've been talking about today, whether it comes to context, whether it comes to burnout, building a practice of gratitude impacts both of those in a positive way. And if you've developed a practice of gratitude, it creates a context of gratitude that you don't recognize, but you become more optimistic. Other people see that in you and it actually spreads in a really positive way. So a really um, impactful, positive context that you can drive is a, a context of gratitude. And uh, I've got a lot of best practices in that ebook on how to develop a practice of gratitude. So, you know, can't, can't help myself. <laughs> um, 
Again, the, the topic of burnout has been really top of mind lately. And one of my favorite books on this topic is by Vivek Murphy. Murphy? <laughs> I can't talk. Um, he's the Surgeon General. He was a Surgeon General under Obama, and then he is again under Biden. And he wrote a book called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. And it's certainly targeted more to an individual. It's not giving as much guidance to um, to somebody who's a leader, but it really does dive into the challenges and the problems that we're seeing in society that existed before COVID and you know, had a magnifying glass put on them with COVID. And it's a really good thing, I think, any leaders who who really want to be effective um, leaders for their teams and and supportive um, should really explore some of the topics. And, and Vivek Murthy's book is excellent for that. Um, and then the last recommendation I have, and then I promise I'll shut up, is from mm-hmm. another former podcast guest, Dave McKeown. And I talked to him in episode 290. He has a book called The Self-Evolved Leader. Elevate your focus and develop your people in a world that refuses to slow down. And what I really like about his book is it's incredibly tactical. It's got exercises and questions. And so if there's somebody who is listening to this and is thinking, you know, I want to evolve as a leader, I want to read Charles's ebook, but then I, I really want to get to work, um, you might want to check out Dave McCown's book because it's an incredible, simple, tactical guide that can really help you there. Awesome. And Charles, I want to nice. hear your thoughts as well. What are some resources or recommendations you'd like to share with the listeners today? Well, like Elizabeth, uh, you know, I like listening to podcasts, but I'm a big TED Talk and uh, YouTube junkie. So um, I mention her in my book because I'm really passionate about the distinction between lone wolf leaders and collaborative, collaborative leaders. And um, when I was doing research for the book, I stumbled across Lorna Davis. She gives this great TED talk that really uh, nails the concepts that I that I talk about. And in particular, there are a lot of what I call lone wolves, and she calls lone wolf leaders in companies that kind of want to get it right. And it's very much a risk reward, positive or negative outcome. You're either the hero if you get it right, or you're the scapegoat. And in our world, since we work with salespeople a lot, we're talking specifically about a VP of sales who wants to take all the accountability and responsibility on their shoulders, which we think is a mistake. And so that's one, it's not very long, it's a great talk, and it distinguishes perfectly the difference between when you act that way as a lone wolf and when you act as a Mm. collaborator, as a collaborative leader, where you're bringing others into your plans and into your discussions, because ultimately they're the ones in many cases that are going to actually execute on a lot of the things that you guys are deciding. So that's number one, Lorna Davis, TED Talk. The other is I was just recently introduced, so it's sort of fresh off the press for me, to a book called Energy Leadership. And if I had to characterize why this is a good read, at least so far from what I've put together in reading it, it's good for you as an individual leader. And and back to what you just said, Ryan, about the impact you make. It talks about your energy mm-hmm. level as a leader. And um, the author is Bruce Schneider. 
and he identifies seven energy levels. And the thoughts that go associated with those levels, the feelings and emotions associated with those levels, and then ultimately how that manifests in the behavior and results of a leader. So I won't go all through all seven, but I'll just give you a couple of example and examples. So there's like the bottom is you act as a victim, your emotions are apathy, and it shows up as kind of being lethargic. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the high energy, the number seven is non-judgmental. Those are your thoughts, very inclusive, core emotions or absolute passion. And the results are you're full of wisdom and creativity. So that's it. That's it for me. Great. That was fantastic. I'll be sure to include um, all of your resources in the show notes, along with a link, of course, to the new ebook, Leadership for Organizational Growth. Charles, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rylan. Great job, Rylan. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. You can find the notes for this episode at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 313. Tune in next Monday for another exciting episode and be sure to check out the CFS blog for more updates and resources at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to this show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We so appreciate your support of the show. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling, everybody.